I don't think that you can know where you're going. I think you can only find out by going there. The whole universe is light. How do you compose that? In the grand piano, there's five levers that are interacting with each other. Each of the 88 keys, there's a lot of possibility within it. I didn't realize what a huge project it was. You're building a house in the middle of nowhere. It's a surprisingly hard thing to do. Say layer upon layer, many, many notes, and then interwoven melodies within all those notes. And then on top of that, this very simple melody on the biggest level. Joining me on Moving Radio today is James Carson. Look, if you know the name, uh, you're already impressed by his body of work, which has been a lifetime. Don't look at me like that, James. We're on Zoom. I know he's like, I'm moderately embarrassed, but there's lots of nice things that have been written about you in the past since you were a very young man. So <laughs> you may just have to accept it. James has not only directed, uh, he has shot, edited, produced a documentary film, which is very much centered on the music that he composes. It's called Cabin Music. Our friends at Northwest Fest are helping to present this screening at the Metro Cinema on Saturday, November 4th at 7 p.m. Now, you can check out that film. James will be there in attendance and doing a Q&A post-film, which I think will be really interesting because this film is uh, is fascinating on several different levels. And on top of that, James, because he's in town, is going to be doing a concert as well, a show at the Yardbird Suite on Sunday, November 5th at 8 p.m. So make sure, uh, you know, you spend an entire weekend with James. Go see the film Cabin Music as well as going to see him at the Yardbird on Sunday as well. James, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. It's such yeah. a pleasure to be here. Yeah. We really appreciate it. And uh, especially with, you know, a film like this, which I think is deeply fascinating because it, it approaches the documentary or the idea of a documentary film, especially about music, in such a unique way, right? Um, this is so much more than a film. It's, you know, I'm, I'm taking this pretty much from the, the press release. It's a 74-minute piece of living art on the screen. A filmmaker, an artist, and subject all at the same time as what you are, and you combine forces for this one unique experience of cabin music, maybe uh, I've given a really broad examination of what it could be and encapsulated that somebody smart wrote in one sentence. Why don't you let the audience know in a little bit more detail, James, what cabin music is about and what people can expect? Well, I grew up in Edmonton, and uh, my father is Canadian and my mother is American. So when I was 18, I went to the New England Conservatory in Boston actually kind of retracing her steps because she did her PhD there at Tufts. So it was kind of like a retracing. Went to Boston and I had studied with a lot of Edmonton musicians. I was not involved in film in my childhood whatsoever, but I studied with people like John Astachio and Alan Gilliland and Chris Andrew and a lot of, you know, Edmonton people that people may or may not know. I played with Brett Miles and Bob Tildesley. And then I went to Boston and then I, that's where I studied with Cecil Taylor and Joe Maneri and Robert Creeley was a really well-known poet and uh, Bob Moses, the drummer. So I studied with some very heavy individuals. I was writing for orchestra. So when I was 15, 16, I was writing for orchestra. The symphony in Edmonton played a piece of mine, I think when I was 16, 17 in there. 
And then I did a thing for the Millennium, uh, for the school board, arranged a piece for a thousand musicians for the Millennium. Uh, it was played in the Jubilee Auditorium. Uh, the symphony piece was played in the Windspirit. And then I went to Boston, had those big experiences with those teachers, and then walked away from everything. So I was writing orchestral music when I went to school, and then I switched to piano, and I walked away from music completely. And then I backpacked from Spain to Japan for two years uh, and worked on farms and France and Italy and uh, Poland and Czech Republic. The film follows this story. So we filmed in France, we filmed in, um, in Barcelona, we filmed in Moscow and Siberia and Japan. So we follow that story through to Japan and then uh, back to the cabin, which I built after. So after that whole trip, I came back to Alberta, built a cabin up in Northern Alberta to change music. That was the long-term vision at the conservatory before traveling. So the short version, just to sum that all up, is went to music school, walked away, traveled around the world, built a cabin, put a piano in it. But since this is an Alberta story and there's, this is an Alberta radio show, we can get into a little more detail and talk with about some of the, like People are going to know a little bit more inside baseball about that part of the story. So the cabin's up there. And then there was a long process after the cabin of figuring out how to communicate that to the world. And that's where New York comes in, and that's where filmmaking comes in. Because uh, I think that there's certain things that only cinema can communicate, but I also think that this project has certain things that can only be communicated via cinema. I don't know how to take many diverse people around the world and put them in a tiny cabin. Well, it's not a tiny, for cabins, it's not a tiny, but a small structure in the middle of nowhere to hear what that sounds like and to understand what the roots and the forces that are at play in that environment are. So that's where cinema comes in, because in the blink of an eye, you can be in Siberia, you can be in Hiroshima, you can be in Paris, you can be in New York, you can be in a cabin very, very quickly and put all those things together. So that's really where the, the film came out and or the, the, the notion of turning it into a film came out. And that was a very, very long process that took maybe 13 years to get to where we are today. And uh, Principles of Photography started in 2010. So long process, which is not uncommon for a documentary. But, uh, and here we are. Now we're, now we're screening it in Edmonton, of all places. <laughs> Well, it makes total sense, of course, you know, I mean, there's uh, <laughs> roots are here, right? But I mean, mm -hmm. you've done a beautifully succinct job of summing up what has been a lifetime for you of of work and of discovery and of reinventing yourself in some ways. Mm. Talk to us a little bit about this idea of, you know, when you start filming this, I, I don't I don't envision that you had an exact way that you were like, oh, the entire film is going to look like this. Uh, it almost feels like probably there was an element of, you know, visual improvisation that is going to try and like match with the music as much as possible. And that these two things are kind of inspiring each other. How has this cabin music evolved from when you started shooting the little bits of it to where it is hmm. now in 2023? Because it's it's a long journey. So in 2010, we rented a Red One camera from Faba, and by we, I mean myself and Aaron Munson, and we went up to the cabin and filmed. There's some shots that I think they may be in the teaser that we, yeah, they're in the teaser that we released, and there, there's some shots that are, well, definitely in the film, but point being that for original photography from the very beginning of a long documentary project to make it all the way into the film, 
it has to have been very, very good if you're going to shoot 400 hours of footage. You're finding the film. That's very common. I, that's something that's happened now. I now produce and edit and support other directors with all of my documentary skills. I'm in the middle of that. We can talk about that later. But I've just learned a lot about this process and, and I'm sharing it with people that it can help. I think it's very unusual for a documentary to have 400 hours of footage and for that initial photography necessarily to make it all the way in. But it's so, it was so defining. It was so defining of certain things about the camera, excuse me, not about the camera, about the cabin and the land. And just very clearly, here's the land, here's the sensor, here's the lens. There is a truth here. Something's true. And I think that this film was only possible in conjunction with those cameras coming into existence. Because if you look at films like Kranoskazi or Baraka, uh, they're getting a million dollars to make those films. That's how they're funded yeah, or more. They usually have a very rich patron. They have a name director out of LA uh, who's executive producing it, like Coppola or somebody like that, or Soderbergh. And it's a very different style of filmmaking than shooting on film. And that's the point I really wanted to highlight is that digital cinema really came online around 2008, 2009 at a price point where it was actually accessible. And to talk about transmitting truth, I think that you can only transmit the truth of that type of location and what's going on there through sufficient means. If it's a scrappy scene in a kitchen with two people arguing, I think you could shoot it on your phone and make something really incredible because the story is not in the atoms in the air that are you know, shimmering with light or something. The story is in what people are saying and their emotions and what's, and what's going on between them. But if you want to capture the air in the cabin and what that feels like and dust, you need a good sensor to actually capture that. And so you could do it on film, but it's really expensive. And so we suddenly had this new opportunity with this incredible glass, it was a Fava and the Red One, which is like their first camera. And so we went up there and what we got was so mind-blowingly accurate to certain things. After that, there's a lot of filtering that goes on. So that's really intrinsic to the documentary process that you see the film has to find itself. That's normal. You have to find the film and you get a lot of truth and you get a lot of not half truths, but miscalibration or something's not right. And you actually have to study that footage and really analyze what's going on in it to, to learn your own verite documenting process. And once you have that, the film starts to, if not solve itself, it starts to present itself. If you've screened, if you've shot the film, excuse me, if you've shot the film in the summer, well, you should, sh the cabin, excuse me, I'll give this to you in a nice uh, soundbite. <coughs> If you've shot the cabin in the summer, then you probably need to film it in the fall. You probably need to film it in the winter. That'll create a base of something. Well, if you've done that, what? where's the New York component? So then you got to go film in New York, right? And then suddenly you start to put these things together. You start to have a lot of intersectionality that's going on. And, okay, well, you need to have a definitive concert. You need to have definitive master interviews. And you start to structure that out. And maybe you try and it doesn't work. And then you have to look at the footage and figure out why it's not working. Was it the questions? Was it the lighting? Was it the, uh, the, the acting approach? The way that you're presenting yourself on camera? What wasn't working? Or is it the editing? One of the, here's a really fascinating thing that we learned. This film does not work if you see my face. So you'll actually notice you rarely see my face in the film, except in very specific situations 
if there's a scene towards the beginning of the film where I'm explaining the music and how that works, and that's almost like a Malcolm Gladwell explaining graphic. I mean, there's actually animations of the notes, but like, here this is, look at me. I would be the expert on my own thing. So I'm going to talk and I'm going to explain it to you. We're going to have a little piano lesson. That's fine. But if you look at the rest of the film, there's one emotional moment in the cabin. It's quite brief about being up there, but we had a general rule, which is there's no talking in the cabin. You rarely see my face except uh, sometimes when playing, like really performing, then you can see my face. But the rest of it, I might have a little soundbite here and there, but you really don't need to see that because what it does is it actually takes you out of the film because the film is not about me. I'm all over the film and all that, but it's not about me. The film is about what the film is about, which is the music and the process of making it and the cabin and, and all, and what it, you know, what it can do for the audience and what it might mean and what they might do with it. So that's really what it's about. It's about all that work and what's been created. So when you see my face, it suddenly just breaks the entire immersive process of the film. So that was something we had to learn. If you go back to that early footage, all of these things were there. The good, the bad, the mistakes, the the analysis, it was all there to be done on and then constantly refined and you get that into the film. And eventually you start to have your whole film and you start to go, well, this is really missing. This is missing. It starts to speak for itself and take control of itself in a certain way. And then you just have to be responsible to the thing cut and, and finish it. We're speaking today on Moving Radio with James Carson. We're discussing the documentary film although it's so much more than that. Uh, it's called Cabin Music. Northwest of Fest is going to be presenting it on Saturday, November 4th at 7 p.m. at the Metro Cinema. Uh, you can catch James there as well. We'll be in attendance and doing a Q&A post-film. Uh, and on top of that, you can catch James live playing at the Yardbird Suite on Sunday, November 5th at 8 p.m. Uh, of course, you can go to either website, Metro Cinema or Yardbird Suite, in order to get tickets so you can spend the whole weekend with James. would be, I think, a fantastic idea. I'm sure he'd love it. <laughs> he'd love to see. I would all. love that. I would love yeah. to see everybody at everything. <laughs> I would love for the people to see the film yeah. and hear the music and have it be totally integrated. We're doing a concert in Vancouver with VIF on November 9th, mm-hmm. where we screen the film with VIF, and then we're all going to walk two blocks over to the Vancouver School of Music to Pyatt Hall and do a concert right afterwards maybe half an hour afterwards. This would be ideal. The ideal would be get ready for the Yardbirds, see the film, get into it, sleep, have some dreams, spend a day and then go hear the concert, have it all be one integrated weekend hangout. I'd say just follow James's instructions and do that. (laughs) (laughs) You just, you just like you created this beautiful weekend already. I'm like, that sounds fantastic. Yeah. (laughs) The interesting thing about cabin music, I'm glad you kind of referred to this idea of, you know, how it presents itself visually and the music itself. And we'll kind of get into a little bit of that uh, later of like what you shot and how you felt about that, too, in in collaborating with other filmmakers, other cinematographers. But it, it occurred to me that, yes, you give this kind of explanation for the audience. And I kind of almost felt like it's like this is for the people that need that. Um, mm-hmm. And then I felt like I was like, I was very glad that it didn't become, you know, an examination mm-hmm. of that. And it was more of an examination in the experience of it. So to me, it seems like, James, you have enough on your plate trying to create something new, something 
that is fresh and something that you're discovering within yourself. But on top of that, you decide you're like, uh, we got to have more layers to this. I got to film it. I got to produce it. I got to direct it. Like, it just seems like you you threw yourself into it so much that uh, I felt like this is ambition on a level of which I cannot comprehend in many ways. Did you ever reconsider to be like, I think I'm going to have to ditch the film and just focus on the music? Or did you feel like this is all has to come together at the same time because then it's truly fulfilling me creatively? I, I appreciate you saying that. I don't know if it was about fulfilling me creatively because I think the moment of creative fulfillment happened really early playing the music for the very first time i'm pretty fulfilled i've been pretty fulfilled for a long time i am a very fortunate person i have perfect pitch uh i was running music when i was four i come from a middle class family there's no abuse in my family my parents are very lovely people i have even playing piano i have large hands i can reach a large span on the keys that opens a lot of doors for me. For me, the, the music thing has been a responsibility that I have felt for a very, very long time, that it's a responsibility. There's a gift that's, I don't associate myself with that gift. It's not part of my identity. I don't think of myself as a pianist. I don't think about the piano and I'll think about music but that's been there for a really long time I did at one point but I don't now and it's not part of my identity I would much more think of myself as like oh I'm busy film producing or thinking about more concrete things the music part has just been there for a really long time and it's been a responsibility so for me all of that you know, uh, whatever, someone from the outside might go, oh, there's a furnace of ambition going on. It's like, well, yeah, okay, you can look at it that way. But from my side, I'm just uh, making sure that I get the things that I'm almost obligated to get done, done. There's a very deep sense. And I had teachers who are dead now. That's a lot of weight. You know, there's a lot of stuff has been put in me by those teachers that that's another added layer of responsibility because Robert Creeley studied with William Carlos Williams. They're both dead. They're both in me through that. Robert Creeley told me his stories about studying with William Carlos Williams when he was 19. And Joe Maneri, that's an Alvin Berg student. So that goes back to Schoenberg. So that's another huge weight on me. And then Cecil Taylor, that's a huge weight. So there's a huge sort of responsibility that kind of got put on me. And I was fortunate enough to be able to handle that, which made it even more of a responsibility because I knew that I could do it. So because I could do it, then you kind of have to do it just to get out of the trap, you know, of it. So it's really just kind of, for me, it's kind of like, well, okay, good. Now I can just have a more normal life because that's been fulfilled if that makes sense. Well, absolutely. It makes total sense about that. And and I think that, you know, subliminally that's kind of coming through, even though people that may see the film don't necessarily know to attach those names to it. Um, but you feel that sense of discovery and you kind of absorbing that, you know, lifetime of discovery and, and of learning in in kind of exploring this new form of music. 
that's that's an incredible thing to be able to articulate visually. Like so, maybe talk to us a little bit about the film itself and maybe conversations you've been having, you know, over years because you started in 2010, right? With you have Aaron Munson, who you mentioned before, and also Brian Leisring, uh, who helped you with this in shooting it. Was there conversations about like, you know, you already talked about like I want to see minute details of things and and mm. like maybe the moments mm. that people overlook right and and those mm. as much as there's notes in music that we don't see you're kind of like these are are the notes or geez, these are the images that compose what goes with the music talk just about those right. conversations that you probably had philosophically about how to shoot this process of filming started with Aaron Munson, as you mentioned. And so Aaron has a very developed uh, visual style of his own. That was a very natural complement to the landscapes at the cabin and the cabin and the sunlight and so on and so forth. So there were certain things that he had spent a long time learning how to film. And they be, that's sort of like a Rolodex of technique that an artist develops. And they may be, I wouldn't say that they, he just copied something that he did but it was a visual language that he suddenly was now in this new environment where there's the cabin and the valley and the sunlight and whatever. And those techniques plus the building of the cabin created a, a, a sort of automatic collaboration where his language plus that landscape created a certain look that's still in cabin music that created a large base. Technically, his approach was just very, just get a sensor and a, a very good lens, a very good sensor, and just that's it. And just, there it is, boom, just capture it truthfully, which I think was very uh, stable as a place to start the film. Now, where Brian came in was more on the New York side, and it's also on a character side. Yeah, on a character side, on a verite side, and on a New York side. And that part of it is really, we had a lot of conversations about details, but there was also this other part where we ended up purchasing a camera for the project and then selling it at the end. So there was a period where I had a camera myself. That was the moment that the part that you were talking about with those details, that's my own visual eye, where when I was traveling, that's a lot of the impetus for why I walked away. And it's the main thesis of the film. And it's not even a spoiler to say that here, that the main thesis of the film is that every single moment is completely different and that the phenomena in every single instant can never be repeated and that there is an infinity of texture and light happening in every single second in every single direction and the lights are always on. That is the main thesis of the film. And you can repeat that a thousand times and it's still hard to understand that because you have to lose yourself. You have to lose your conditioning to be able to see that. But I had spent a long time seeing that. I had spent many years dealing in that space. So when I suddenly had the chance to have the camera, suddenly then I could just go and zero in and just film all the things that to me were always overlooked everywhere all the time. And it's not just you know reflections or things that are in windows. It's like just every single thing that you or, or that your brain is processing out, I'm n noticing. So I could just point the camera right at that. So then you have this mix of Aaron's very developed sort of nature, sort of Tarkovsky-esque mystical nature language that is his own, that he's developed. And then you have Brian with a very gritty verite addition to that. 
And then we also brought Brian up to the cabin, which is very important for the verite scenes in the cabin. So you have that, and then you have me and what I see and filming that. So all the stuff around, like globally, I did all of that. So all the stuff in Europe and in Siberia, Japan, I filmed all that. And then the New York, like the rain, the subway, all those textures, that was all my own language. And when you combine all that together, you end up with, I think, a very rich uh, visual, very immersive language. And I definitely borrowed from both of them in my own education process. And I worked with a couple other people. I worked with Peter Stathis, who's in Vancouver a little bit. And he was, I learned a lot from all the people that I worked with and that all fed into what I was doing. Very collaborative process, I would say. You know, going through that many years, it has to be. And, and let's talk about another element of maybe that collaboration too. When when you talk about editing and, and how many hours of footage that you actually have there, do you, you kind of look at editing film as the same way as composing music? Like, I, I feel like that I've talked to other people that have done scores for their own film. They feel like there are some parallels, but, you know, you're looking at this as, as they're walking hand in hand together in some ways being mm-hmm. created at the same time. So did you see them as being similar things or were you like, they kind of just find a way to meld together? Mm. Well, I used to write for orchestra. So I did have, I've always had a long form brain of that's a very complex music brain thing that went into my brain and then building the cabin broke my brain i've done a lot of stuff where i just have broken my brain and then learned a new thing so traveling was one and farming was in the cabin was one and editing i was i had teachers that i worked for and with so i've learned from a couple of them one of them was morty ashkenauts who cut the fedex fast talking man ad i don't know if you know that the and the where's the beef ads he's like a legendary editor guy and another one is phyllis hausen who cuts uh, Little Fires Everywhere, and she's in LA. She cuts a lot of big stuff. I think she's the lead assistant on Kill Bill. She's a pretty, pretty serious editor. And both of them, uh, there's a certain amount of secret editor knowledge that I have been given of just, I say secret editor kind of jokingly, but what's the difference between six and a 12 frame? You know, what's the difference between six frames and 12 frames? That's an editor knowledge thing um, that's in me. But I think sort of zooming out to what it is, Walter Murch talked about it sort of like Russian dolls where you have very, you know, you have the whole three act structure and then you have scenes inside scenes, inside scenes, down to shots, inside shots, inside shots. So let's actually talk editing for a second. Cause I feel like editing is of my film skills, one of my strongest film skills. So cabin music is, this would be interesting. Cabin music is edited to the golden ratio. And this was the big discovery that made it work. And up until that point, the film did not really settle down. And there are these long passages where you're looking at trees, where you're looking at nature, there's wind, there's this or that, there's thunderstorms or whatever it is. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't feel cohesive. And how do you know if it's supposed to be this length or this length or this length or this length? It's very difficult to settle it down. Where this came was that when I was at music school, I took a class on Renaissance motets. The Renaissance composers composed their pieces to the golden ratio in the same way that the painters would structure their paintings to the golden ratio. And so if you look at a Renaissance motet, you will see the golden ratio and a crown of smaller golden ratios around it. And all of the general structure points are outlined 
using a type of golden ratio structure and they had a religious link to it that said like that's jesus and this is that or this is the cross and this is the crown but the point is that you were structuring something that was temporal with the golden ratio when i remembered that then i realized that you could probably cut the film that way so actually the farthest part the farthest away point in the film would be in siberia in tuva with the tuvan throat singers well, that first shot of Siberia is at the golden ratio of the film. And this actually goes all the way down to 11 frames, 17 frames, 28 frames, 44 frames, the entire film. And you don't have to be locked into these rules, but it is there. I think the film edit itself has about 2000 markers over the whole thing. And basically what's going on is that you're feeling a subconscious structure in time. And that's actually what puts you into the trance when you look at waves on the ocean. It's very peaceful to look at waves on the ocean. It's not as peaceful to look at a single shot in a gallery. It's still pretty peaceful. Looking at something that's been cut six times in a gallery of waves in an ocean is probably kind of boring at a certain point unless it's really well done. So what's going on? Well, you're breaking the rhythm of it. But if you could break the rhythm on the rhythm, Meaning if you could tap into the underlying structure that's actually causing those waves to come and go at an organic, subconsciously predictable place, because the golden ratio just means it refers to itself in an organic way, right? It just means for people don't, I mean, I think most people know, but it's like, you just add the last number in the series. So one, one, two, three, five, eight, 13. So it's just, you're just adding where you were to where you are. And if you think about a tree, if you think about a tree growing, doubling in size is probably impractical, but growing a little bit more every year is practical and they happen to grow on variants of the golden ratio. And so when this film moves into moments, you're actually following an organic spiral. The clips are getting longer or shorter, contracting according to that. And I think that's why it can put you into an immersive trance it's yeah so that was really a crucial key to how to put the film together and then being the musician and the cinematographer the principal cinematographer of the film i could then just really tie it all together and make it do what i wanted to make it do after that point well it's a fantastic piece of filmmaking um you know whether you've heard of james's work or not uh, I would suggest that you go check it out. You can see Cabin Music at the Metro Cinema on Saturday, November 4th at the 7 p.m. screening. Uh, Northwest Fest is kind of presenting this as well, but uh, James will be there as part of a Q&A following the film, too. It should be uh, – look, you've stayed this long for this conversation. You should know he's already a pretty articulate and fascinating guy talking about this piece, which he's been living with with a decade plus. So, you know, it's uh, it's going to be a great conversation, and I'm sure you've had some great ones after the film as well. But on top of that, James, just because, you know, you like to work hard, you're going to be doing a show as well at the Yardbird Suite on Sunday, November 5th at 8 p.m. Uh, I encourage you to check out both. Uh, and like James said, dream of the music, <laughs> dream of the film, yeah. and then come see this show on Sunday. Uh, James, I just want to thank you so much for the time and especially for the film, which I thought was a really incredible experience. And uh, I can't wait for people to be checking this out on the screen. And as an audience, too, I feel like there'd be a different feeling than just me sitting at home alone on the computer and kind of watching it by myself. Well, the one thing that I would just hope is that 
it, with the film is that every single person can have a different outcome, and a different interpretation, and it can go in a different direction. And that's how it's, I intended it to work, which is that whatever people are going through, the film can sort of be a mirror and connect you to any of the many influences that are going into the cabin or coming out of the cabin through the music or through the cinematography. And I would love to give this to Edmonton. I would love to just give all of that to Edmonton and let Edmonton vacuum it up and just <laughs> give it give it to this city that I love so much and everyone can just take it and do other things. That's what I would love. Well, I think you're going to feel that love over the weekend. Uh, James, really appreciate the time. I know there is social media stuff out there for the film itself. Uh, is there anything you want to tell them other than just like, you know, basically searching cabin music just to find those things? You can go to cabinmusic.earth. That's the main website. If you go to James Cabin on Instagram, you'll find me and I think cabin music on YouTube. That would be the big three. But James Carson, cabinmusic.earth. James Cabin on Instagram and Cabin Music on YouTube. All right. Well, thank you again for your times, James. Uh, and good luck with the the rest of this journey because you're just kind of starting out here and there'll be uh, there's many other experiences to have with this and audiences. Thanks. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it.